So, welcome everybody to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Deborah James, and I'm in the Anthropology Department here at the London School of Economics. And I'm very pleased to be here to welcome um, James Fairhead, uh, Katie Gardner, David Lewis, and David Moss. They're all professors, but I decided not Yay. to go through the professor <laughs> by professor. Um, they're so important, you don't have to really mention their titles. <laughs> so Katie is Professor of Anthropology and Head of Department here at the LSE. Uh, David is Professor of Social Policy and Development and Head of Department of Social Policy at LSE. I think you're picking up a certain theme here. Heads of Department seem to be very good book writers. Um, David Moss is Professor of Social Anthropology at SOAS. I think you're a Head of Department. Um, He's also the Head of Department. <laughs> and James Fairhead was recently a head of department and professor of social anthropology at the University of Sussex, which is where Katie used to be. So they're old colleagues from before. So um, they're going to be talking in different ways about this new book, which they have just recently reissued. Before we start, um, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Lewis. And I assume you're all going to be... <laughs> Tweeting away like mad. Um, please, could you put your phones on silent? We don't want to have any phones going off. And the evening's event is being recorded and will hopefully be available soon as a podcast. After the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put questions to the panel. And there will also be a book signing event um, happening outside. Just um, copies of Anthropology and Development Challenges for the 21st Century will be outside there. And there will also be some wine and snacks, so please will you come along for those. But please will you join me in welcoming the panel to deliver their discussion. So I'm first going to introduce Katie, who will speak a little bit about okay. the original book. Thank you, Deborah, and thanks everybody for coming to this. It's great to see lots of people here, and um, especially welcome to students um, some of whom I'm teaching at the moment, but also welcome to other people from outside of the LSE and from inside of the LSE. It's really lovely to have a nice, warm, big audience. So um, I think <coughs> what I'm going to do really briefly is just um, talk for a few minutes about the first edition of the book, which um, David and I set out to write long before we'd even thought about becoming professors, or certainly not heads of department. It seems like a long, long time ago, back in the mid-'90s. Um, we had both of us emerged from sort of nascent or sort of proto-careers in the world of development. I'd, I'd um, gone from my PhD to work at ODA, which is now DFID, for a year or so. And David had had experience as a consultant and working for various NGOs before we'd sort of landed academic jobs. So we were always talking about anthropology, and we were talking about development and what was it and how did we engage in this incredibly problematic set of activities and ideas that was development. And I have to confess to you, I'd withdrawn from that world. I didn't really feel very comfortable within it. And at the same time as, right, as, as having these discussions, I think it would be fair to say in the mid-90s that anthropology as a discipline was facing what has been termed by some people as a kind of a crisis, or that might be slightly overstating it, but certainly a lot of deeply worrying concerns around the ways that anthropologists represented the other, what anthropology's kind of place in the post-colonial world was. And I would say it's fair to say reeling, in a sense, from some of the 
um, post-colonial critiques of anthropology as being um, as having issues in the way it represented in the way it it constructed um, other societies. So this is a time really of concern. And, and in our first, the first edition of our book, we called it the postmodern crisis, which I, I I don't know if colleagues sitting here would agree that it was a crisis, but it felt like it all felt rather difficult. At the same time, or around this time, there was, of course, um, a very important book was published by um, a Torah Escobar called... Um, I'm now going to blank on what it's called. Encountering Encounter- I, I just taught it last week, for Christ's sake. I do know what it is. Okay. Um, I'll just blank there. Um, which really, again, it made all of our anxieties even more sort of pertinent because what he was arguing was that um, development is a post-colonial discourse and that really one cannot engage with it. Um, one really has to move right outside of it. So the first edition of our book was really about that. And what we did was we set out the history of the anthropology of development and anthropologists in development. And then we talked about ways in which anthropologists might engage in development and in, 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 in the different questions that anthropologists might ask and the different ways that they might engage. And what we argued was that actually Escobar had got it slightly wrong or what he hadn't noticed was that there were a lot of things going on in the world of development at that time, late 80s into the mid-90s, which seemed to us to be very exciting and new. For example, ideas about participation, ideas about gender and development, the rise and rise of NGOs, all of which at that time seemed to be very fresh and exciting. So what we did in the first edition of the book was really to pose some of the problems to talk about the history of the anthropology of development, both in terms of what was written and the academic analysis of development, but also um, in terms of the ways that anthropologists had engaged practically, and then say, but the discourse can be changed. So after that, time has passed. The book actually sold very well, and we've been quite gratified and surprised that it's become you know, quite a popular book. I think that people have found it quite easy to use and to relate to. We then decided about a few years ago that what we should do now is update it and say, okay, we had all those ideas then, what has happened next? And that's what the second edition is trying to do, is to update and say, there's been a lot of time has passed since then, almost 20 years, is it? Yes, 20 years. What has happened since then? So over to David. Thanks, Katie, and uh, thanks everybody for coming this evening. Um, yeah, so as, as Katie said, um, this book originally came out of our own experiences as fairly recently graduated PhD students, and we'd both been doing fieldwork in Bangladesh. So um, we, you know, it came out of our own experiences, but it also came out of, I think, something that we noticed, which was that there just wasn't a book out there that dealt with these issues at that time. I mean, there had been a few books about anthropology's relationship with development, but they were, they were very old, and there was nothing there. So in some ways, it was a relatively easy job to, to fill this gap and to start thinking about it. And then, of course, 20 years later, it's much harder because there's a lot of stuff out there. And, um, you know, one of the difficulties I think we had was that if, if you go back to a book, you're kind of a bit stuck because you can think well let's update it so you can go through it and you can update bits here and there but sooner or later every time you look at something you feel dissatisfied with it you feel things have changed so we we got into quite a tangle I think about you know is this a new book do we just rewrite everything do we leave some of it 
And it was actually much more difficult to do, I think, this time mm. than it was the first time, because the first time it sort of started to fall into place very easily. But anyway, um, what I want to spend a few minutes talking about is what this new edition of the book is trying to argue. And I think one of the, one of the really important issues that we, you know, we were surprised by, I suppose, is that uh, development didn't die as an idea or as a set of practices and policies the way that in the mid-90s it looked as though it might and many of the critical uh, researchers and theorists and activists were predicting. It didn't die. It's still there and it's a stronger idea than ever. But I think it's changed. And one of the ways that we're arguing that it's changed in this book is that it's not really about us and them anymore in the sense that development isn't just something that goes on in the South or in the Third World or, you know, um, you know, what we try and do is we try to challenge the binaries which have been so central to one's thinking about the world of development. Um, and we can talk about that. And, of course, that's a point that is now actually reflected in the world of policy and the sustainable development goals. The SDGs are, are now, they apply to everybody. They're not just about, you know, so-called developing countries. Um, but also in the book, we, we talk about anthropology's capacity to broaden understandings of development. If it hasn't died, it's out there, but it's a lot of different things. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of, um, you know, discussion about what development means and it's not just about economic growth and it's about human development and it's about um, technological change or it's about, you know, a whole range of different understandings. There's mainstream development, there's alternative development. And I think we're, you know, we're pushing much harder at that to say... There are still plenty of dominant assumptions out there that development is, is about economic growth and technology, but there are also really interesting alternatives which challenge those ways of thinking about development. So we start the book and we end the book by talking very briefly about the Rana Plaza uh, garment factory disaster in Bangladesh. And we use that as a way of talking about what we think an anthropological engagement with development might be about. And we, we look at what I'm sure a lot of people have already um, sort of taken on board as the sort of two different ways in which the idea of development is used, which is sometimes called big D development and little d development. And big D development being the world of conscious interventions and development agencies and donors and NGOs and, and little d development as being the unfolding processes of capitalist change and the wider patterns of uh, globalization, uh, migration, growth. Um, and that if one looks at an example like the Rana Plaza factory disaster, one can see how 
the three main themes that we end, you know, that we thread through the book, which is that anthropology can tell us a lot about control, issues of control and power. It can tell us a lot about issues of access and power, and it can also tell us a lot about the effects of development on people. And we, you know, we talk in the conclusion of the book about issues of control. So if one looks at that case, workers are unable to have control over working conditions. Um, owners have too much capacity to control and flout regulations. Landowners are able to, to break rules for um, the way in which land is used, factories constructed, regulations ignored. We look at issues of access in that the, there is a high sort of cost in uh, social terms to access to global markets, which is what lies you know, you know, behind uh, the growth of the garment industry in Bangladesh. And we look at the effects of the, of the uneven and contradictory uh, patterns of little d development and the, the effects of efforts in big D development to try to regulate or to create corporate social responsibility in the garment industry, all the things that, um, you know, that development agencies are trying to do. <clears throat> so um, you know, we conclude, and I should probably wrap this up, is um, we come up with four issues that we think anthropology and anthropologists can offer the study of development. We say that anthropology can't avoid uh, development. It's all around us. It's in, in the broadest uh, sense, it's an idea which is stronger than ever. But what we can do is to better document and explain the deepening inequalities and the patterns of unequal change through careful ethnography. We can identify and challenge the, what we call the anti-politics after, after, after the anti-politics uh, machine of James Ferguson's famous book, the way in which development also involves the co-option of, of alternative, often progressive ideas. We can identify and challenge that. We can also challenge the normative frameworks which exist around broader understandings of change and development in relation to issues like gender, ethnicity, sexuality, through engaged anthropological work. And the movement within anthropology of trying to overcome the distance between critical, distanced work and practicing or applied work is also one of the themes that we, you know, that we try and tackle in the book. The third issue... Sorry, the fourth and final issue is that we, we see anthropology as very well positioned to uh, describe alternative ways of seeing and of doing and of reclaiming ideas about development from the mainstream as the way in which positive change is imagined, practiced and experienced in all societies. Thank you. Um, over to you, David. <coughs> okay. Um, Thank you. Um, I was a huge admirer of Katie and David's 
first edition um, of Anthropology, Development and the Postmodern Challenge when it came out in 1996. And it really did consolidate um, a field of the anthropology of and in um, development in a, in a way that really was a, a landmark. It very quickly became on everybody's uh, reading list and launched, in a way, courses on the anthropology of development, which really didn't exist before then. Um, the new book has the same scope, in a way, although the horizon that's surveyed, for reasons that David just explained, is, is much wider. And um, sometimes it's, it's good, uh, or other, the good thing about revisits whether it's going back to places you've done fieldwork in or other kinds of revisits, if it really gives you a sense of perception of change. And that's what I got reading this book, a sense of, yes, there had been a movement. The world um, of 1996 was very different. It was a long time ago, unimaginable, five years before 9-11. A very different world, different institutional actors. But in reading the book, we also realize many of the same issues and many of the same uh, dilemmas. The new book also allows um, anthropology to look back on itself with the kind of reflexive awareness that as anthropologists we're always keen to encourage um, in our our work. Um, It also, and I think this is important for me, allows a restatement of the core ideas, debates, and classic studies and development theory that gave birth to the anthropology of development in the first place. Often we can be very forward-looking and forget, actually, that these were grounded in some really important pieces of work. So that rereading the older parts is actually as interesting and as important as the, as, as, as the, as the new parts. Um, the book tells us, and, and I'd have to agree with this assessment, how the development world has changed. I mean, there are new actors. Um, The BRIC bilateral donors, the philanthro-capitalists, the corporations, the corporate social responsibility programs, the remittances that fly around the world. Um, I think the book came out just uh, just too soon for the Chinese-backed Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank to feature, but there's a big counterweight to um, the World Bank. Um, the book also shows that the new development world just doesn't have new actors. It also reorganizes the categories. So you know, David's just talked about the us and them, home and away, um, security and development, things that are put together in, 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 in new ways. There are also different or maybe not so different problems, global inequality, um, resource conflicts, displacement, migration, and, and, and security again. Um, The book also points in the new uh, field of development to new forms of dissent, um, but also, I think, new forms of accommodation to the world and the aspirations of development, protests um, alongside um, uh, cash transfer programs. So the world of development is also now a world of monitoring and measurement, Um, RCTs, Randomized Controlled Trials, Uh, payment by results, that makes the sort of process and participatory approaches of the 1990s seem positively sandals and beards um, (laughs) in in comparison. Um, But this does also open up opportunities for anthropologists to to, to examine the social production of data, um, to lay bare the, uh, as it were, the rule of evidence 
and its technopolitics, to distort a, a title from um, Timothy Mitchell's book. Now, Katie David's book is something of a roller coaster, uh, in the sense that there are uppers and there are downers. Uh, there's, the, there's the upper of the, you know, the interesting uh, new development world, and then there's the downer of the disappointing story of anthropology's engagement uh, with it. And then we're up again uh, with new possibilities of engagement. And it made me wonder... Are there other sub-disciplines that have such mood swings? <laughs> what is it about <laughs> development and the anthropology's engagement that causes this sort of... And is it because actually all of this takes place within the framework of the hope of, of development, that we have that, and therefore we do... We, we face optimism and disappointment. And I couldn't find the parallel subfield that quite had that, mm. um, that, that tendency. For what it's worth, I'd, I'd make the case uh, in terms of um, the downer that um, uh, the rise of social development in organizations and the expansion of anthropologists working within aid agencies has actually had this unexpected effect of further marginalizing anthropology as a critical ethnographic discipline within institutions. There seems to be less space, although there are more anthropologists or more anthropologically uh, trained people. Perhaps one thing that's critical here that doesn't really get focused on in, in, in the book, um, but comes out in the work of Ben Fine and others, is the relationship with economics um, as the dominant discipline of organizations of development, the World Bank and, and others. Um, the powerful tendency uh, of everything that's social and relational that anthropologists think and talk about to become instrumentalized, whether it's issues of equity or empowerment or social capital um, or, or, or whatever it is, part of that intellectual engagement and, and um, disciplinary uh, confrontations. Um, David and Katie suggest different pathways forward towards engagement, uh, anthropology, or engaged anthropology, uh, collaborative and uh, activist research. Um, and, and to a considerable extent, I think, our graduate research students have already moved the discipline in, in this direction as ethnographers who are embedding themselves within intentional organizations or intentional communities, um, those with whom they're deeply sympathetic um, in many cases. But the, the methodological and the ethical issues that arise and the altered politics of ethnographic inquiry that's involved, um, the, 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 the management of the shift in location that's involved in new kinds of fieldwork, which could be a change in role, a change in institution, rather than a, a change in, in place, seem to me as profoundly complex as any the discipline has had to grapple with. Uh, perhaps we, we need a companion guide um, on the implications of taking up the task of analytical description in the new, uh, the new kind of world. Uh, and I'm not sure anthropologists, as fieldwork-based researchers, have really found a safe passage um, through some of the routes that the book points to in terms of where it's going. There's no doubt that the, the, the book shows there are, there's a rich source of ethnographic... Um, uh, well, it is a rich source of ethnographic references, and, 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 and ex excellent ethnographic work is going on on the new development world, um, giving us some terrific insights... Um, into the, way of the ways of markets or corporate social responsibility or fair trade and, and so much more. And the reviews of these, this literature in the book is, is, is fantastic. Um, by way of 
these various studies that are reviewed, we come to realize that the idea of development and its processes has, has not just kind of, it's not been eroded so much, but it's in a sense been radically, more radically transformed than we realized in the sense of being hollowed out uh, from within. So it, the, 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 a lot of things look the same, but actually the meaning of what's going on is really quite, is quite different. Um, we're, to have got to a position where, where consumer goods, self-disciplining work, or, or the productive cultural capital of the poor themselves can be the instruments of development rather than institutional actors, donors, and so on, has really mean we're talking about a very different kind of, uh, kind of world. Um, and I think in that regard, uh, David and, and Katie are undoubtedly right to encourage anthropologists of development to look beyond the bubble of, of aid land, so-called, to, to these processes. And this seems to be one of the main messages of the, of the book. Um, to study the multinational corporations, uh, the philanthropy, the uh, religious-inspired uh, development initiatives, China and India as donors, the neoliberal markets, the ethical trade, grassroots um, movements, the forces of political economy of, of all sorts um, that produce the kind of circumstances that, that mean that development still remains uh, legitimate as, a, as, as an exercise, the global power, the global uh, finance. Um, in other words, everything. Um, and, and the anthropology of development then becomes an anthropology of everything. Um, and while I'm sympathetic to this broad view and see where it comes from, um, and there's no doubt that the, the boundaries of anthropology development have been radically, re, been radically redrawn, um, I think that the ambition to be the anthropology of everything runs a risk, perhaps, of losing sight of the significance of where the anthropology of development began. Um, and that is the treatment of planning, its institutions and knowledge processes, the particular characteristics of interventions that take place across nations and cultures, with all the contradictions of the gift and partnership and expertise and cooperation, the ways that, all, that human beings in their institutions imagine worlds that are planable, that are changeable through rational plans and actions. That, uh, that remains um, important, I think. Um, the rise of new donors such as China as a donor in Africa or Islamic donors or, or CRS in no way diminishes uh, this specific field of inquiry. Um, in any case, most inventions, in any, one way or another, end up being projectized. Uh, projects haven't disappeared, uh, a lot, even though things happen in, in lots of uh, different ways. Of course, the focus on, on, uh, on development planning in this sense is, as, uh, and I, I like this comment from Olivier um, de Sardin, when he says that it, we're not so, we don't so much have a separate object of study, but a privileged empirical pathway through a complex set of institutions, flows, and actors. And I think a focus on development planning and all that it involves is a privileged pathway. And it is a particular kind of pathway, different from others, and I think that remains important and, and distinctive. Um, in the, how much, am I talking? Am I, do I need Sorry, to wrap go up? On, go on, go on. <laughs> um, in the penultimate chapter, we're on another downer, uh, I'm afraid. The 20-year trajectory of all the ambitions and hopes of empowerment, of gender, of participation, and the chapter's called When Good Ideas Turn Bad. Um, uh, in the case of participation, which I've um, got a, had a particular interest in, I think I'd say that the techniques of participatory planning have actually worked rather well. 
Um, but their effect has been quite the opposite of what we were told they would be. The, the effects have been to enable local people to participate in or acquire planning knowledge, not planners to acquire uh, local knowledge to transform them. Um, in other words, people have acquired through these techniques of various kinds to understand how to construe or even transform themselves into beneficiaries with appropriate needs and appropriate desires so that they fit within any given program uh, rather than producing a transformation of development planning per se uh, through bottom-up processes. And perhaps this is also a key to the anthropology of development and its research agenda, um, to, to think about um, to understand how the dreams and desires that people have are shaped and as well as thwarted by the ideas of development. Um, the, the, the broad, in broader terms, um, the, the terms of economic and cultural integration as more and more um, certain ideas and framings become the ones through which people come to have to think about themselves and their futures. Um, development may or may not be a distinctive apparatus separable from other kinds of things and other kinds of relations between state and society and so on, but it can be studied as the fraught institutional efforts to try and imagine a world of that kind, uh, to make a world uh, like, of that kind that can be, can be improved. And I think the final point um, to say, following up on the four, um, uh, the four uh, legs of the, of the sort of programmatic statement at the end about what anthropology can do, study inequality, uh, challenge anti-politics, uh, challenge normative frameworks, um, uh, and, and um, find innovative ways of, of, um, of seeing and doing, um, is, is to say that, um, well, two things. One is that this it strikes me as a kind of set of grid references for anthropology as a discipline uh, to find its ethical location rather than um, a description of a field of, of inquiry. It's, it's about how to find ourselves, how to locate ourselves. But it does raise the difficult questions of what do anthropologists do once they've located themselves uh, in, in, this, uh, in, in this field. Are we able to still use the existing tools that, that we have um, do the forms of research relationships, the conditions of access, the kinds of participation involved place quite different and more complex demands on um, an already existing tension that anthropology has between identification with object, you know, people we're studying and engaging with and distanciation, pulling back and reflecting and writing about it. And perhaps more challenging still, and this is the final point I want to make, um, is, is how knowledge, the question of how knowledge that is anthropo anthropological is able to negotiate its existence alongside knowledge of other kinds and, and from other, uh, other locations. Um, Maya Green uh, uh, talks about anthropology's claim for epistemological privilege, the fact that we can encompass the knowledge and understanding of others in our ethnographic framing of what's going on. And yet, how, and yet that is subject to challenge. That's not, so that's not a taken for granted any longer. So the politics of knowledge and coexisting with parallel ways of doing knowledge, I think, are a set of issues that run alongside and parallel to this new world of, um, of, of development and, and the anthropology of development. Thanks very much. If anybody wants to know more about the, some of the problems that David just outlined, read his book. <laughs> Cultivating development, right? Yeah. <clears throat> the ethical issues that come with going along with um, investigating these worlds. 
Right, so we hand over to James Fairhead. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for inviting me and uh, for, for the opportunity to, to reflect on this. I suppose many of you are thinking, well, what, what do we do when we read a book and then come to talk about it uh, in front of an audience? I guess there are different uh, ways to read a book. One of the ways to read this book is to see if it's useful for teaching. Um, it is. Okay. Um, it's uh, exceptionally readable. It's wonderfully theoretical, but it's grounded in example after example after example, and that is just fantastic. I think it's great to have a book that introduces this sub-discipline, and we'll come to that in a minute, uh, for students, but it takes, takes you a lot further than introducing it. I think a second way of reading the book is what David's done. So what does it argue? What does it say? Okay, and he's given a very strong uh, rendition uh, of that, and I would uh, recommend you have taken notes or look at the podcast um, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and explore it. Uh, because, indeed, you know, there is a strong argument. And this balance between is this um, a book about anthropology or a book about anthropology uh, and development, uh, where do the two fit together? Those are really uh, interesting questions. David tried to delimit it. He did, uh, about planning. But then he, he started talking about dreams and futures and ideas, and all of a sudden this is a much grander anthropology, even if it's restricted to planning. So it's, it's, a, it's a tricky area where anthropology and development mix. Uh, but I'd leave that to, to David and to yourselves. Uh, the third way to read a book like this is to see how it inspires your own work. Uh, what does a book like this do to help us, in our own research, think through the challenges that we face, uh, the, the research challenges, the, the things that crop up? Uh, and so that's really what I want to talk about, is how this book uh, uh, is useful for me. How does it inspire my own uh, fields of, of work? Um, and in that, I guess, uh, I'm looking at the sort of programmatic agenda there at the, at the end, um, uh, David and Katie, they ask us to document inequality. They ask us to challenge the anti-politics of development. That is what uh, development uh, does uh, almost as fortuitous side consequences of its existence rather than what it says it does. Uh, to challenge the normative frameworks uh, of development. Well, we need to challenge to see normative frameworks, and I'm going to talk about this in a minute, and then describe alternative ways of seeing and doing. I think that's wonderful, because if an anthropology of development is to understand alternative ways of seeing and doing, well, that's what anthropology is about. Uh, so anthropology of development in that last paragraph suddenly becomes uh, a much broader uh, agenda for us all. So, uh, so uh, what I'm going to talk about a little bit is where anthropology is going, where development is going, and where anthropology and development is going. Just a small agenda. Um, uh, but this, this book comes out, uh, this book, uh, comes out with the publication of the Sustainable Development Goals just a couple of, uh, a month or two ago. Um, uh, these are, in fact, a month ago, maybe, something like that. So right on the nail. These are very different from the Millennial Development Goals, which I'm sure you're all learning about and you know, passing over, uh, because they were developed uh, globally, not by a group of people in a room up in DFID and the World Bank. They were developed out of a massive participatory exercise. They're about planned planning for the future. Um, but they're not our plans for their future 
as it were, but uh, global plans for a global future. Uh, development isn't restricted in the sustainable development goals to a particular geography, uh, a particular set of places. Britain has subscribed to meet the sustainable development goals and therefore it needs to integrate its ministerial worlds in order to address that. Uh, that's quite something. Development isn't something that happens over there from here on in. It's changed big time. Uh, equally, there have been, of course, global realignments. Uh, what the sustainable development goals mean to the British public uh, is rather different to what it means to the Chinese public. Um, uh, and therefore, uh, the, the, the relationship between um, uh, the new uh, global geopolitical order and uh, the nature of development is going to be radically different in uh, five years' time, in ten years' time, in 15 years' time. You are going to be experiencing the, this difference. It's fantastic. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a wonderful uh, set of transformations, uh, plurality of voices. Um, uh, negotiated understandings of dreams of futures. How is that going to emerge? So development itself is, is great. At the same time, development is moving to be about inequality. Uh, it's about the production of inequality and ways to address it. Uh, I shall come to that in a minute. So where is anthropology going? Oh, um, very hard to predict. Uh, but I think one of the predictions is uh, here on, on the front of, of, of the stage. You know, here we have the head of department of LSE, the deputy head of department of LSE, uh, the head of department at SOAS, former head of department at Sussex. I used to chair the Association of Social Anthropologists. Anthropology and development isn't a sub-discipline. It's not like a marginal part of anthropology. This is anthropology. This is uh, the heart of it. It's the engaged anthropology. And what Katie and David do in their book, wonderfully, is they, uh, they say at the end, um, could we just call anthropology and development uh, just an engaged anthropology? Well, to an extent, uh, I quite like that. Um, whether the, when they rewrite this book uh, in 15 years' time, uh, <laughs> will, so. will development be in the title? What will be in the title? I think that's, uh, that, that's going to be uh, uh, an issue. Um, and I, look f well, I don't look forward to it, actually. You know, I, th I quite like slow years. <laughs> um, but I will read it when it comes. Um, but in this anthropology, is, is anthropology and development just about the suffering slot? Are we just about poor and, and, and hard done by um, well, that's what I'm, I'm thinking about uh, uh, challenging uh, in what I have to say just a little bit about, about this. Um, uh, anthropology and development is about a lot more than suffering. It's about a lot more than just aligning ourselves with uh, the poor. It is certainly about that. Uh, but to understand that, we need to understand a great deal more about the production of poverty and the production of inequality. Uh, so in my own work, for example, I, I, I touch on issues that Katie and, and David actually say, well, we're not going to focus our examples on those. I focus on uh, environmental questions, and I focus on health questions, and of late I focus on war, humanitarian issues, uh, and I want to talk about a few other issues that I, I think we should all focus on. Uh, so in the environment, for example, here this book is exploring the new actors, uh, it's not looking at the environment, but it leads us into the businessification of the environment, the commodification, uh, the financialization of uh, the environment. 
uh, the, the way in which the Amazon now can be sold on futures markets. Carbon is, is, is traded. What does this mean for the way that we understand the environmental order? Uh, the new actors, uh, the management consultants, the market makers, uh, the traders in London, uh, the, the, the biodiversity bank investors, uh, they're all part of the anthropology of development. This isn't just about uh, the Ministry of or you know, the Department for International Development uh, uh, hiring a few consultants. Nothing like it. The development world has transformed. What is planning under this operation? How does the neoliberalization that we see uh, beautifully channeled and, and examined in this book uh, relate to all the areas that we're all interested in? Well, read, read the book and find out. Um, uh, secondly, I suppose I work on health. Uh, last year, uh, Ebola came to Guinea, the Republic of Guinea, which is a, a place that I uh, work and study. Um, uh, we can't escape development as people. We can't escape uh, the, these issues. They come to our door. We have to respond uh, as anthropologists, as people. Uh, and so in the health area, uh, anthropology suddenly became uh, the way to address the, the crisis. The crisis was a crisis heavily of funeral practices. Well, that's something anthropologists major in. How does the anthropology of funeral practices and culture then intersect with the World Health Organization and what it would like to do with bodies? Uh, how, how, and Médecins Sans Frontières and others. These are really uh, challenging uh, arenas. There is a politics and an anti-politics to, to all of this. Uh, there is a need to understand culture, uh, and yet there's a need to understand critical takes on the nature of culture and to look at the culture of aid agencies and aid delivery as much as cultures on the ground in order to see how this uh, humanitarian disaster unfolded, how the response unfolded. Uh, there's enormous areas for anthropology. Margaret Chan uh, has put anthropology in her future program for the WHO. Um, I, I'm, uh, a couple more minutes. <laughs> yep, sure. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Three more okay. minutes? Yeah, three more minutes. Okay, uh, that's quick. Um, uh, inequality, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to race over, but we study elites. Uh, the anthropology of development is the study of, uh, of, of the Lloyd's uh, insurance uh, brokers. It's the study of uh, the financial crisis. Uh, it's not just the study of um, one or two uh, located uh, villages uh, in, in, such as those in Guinea where I would normally have worked uh, 20 years back. Now uh, we have to find new methods to in encapsulate these global uh, intersections. Uh, we don't... Uh, anthropology is long theorized in a global form, but there are new theoretical repertoires we're going to need to embrace. And again, uh, this book is helping us see where uh, the, the existing anth uh, theory in anthropology meets uh, these new challenges. There has been a militarization of... Uh, of aid and development. Uh, the humanitarian world is a military world. Uh, anthropologists have been drawn into wars in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, the human terrain teams, uh, uh, the brigade anthropologist is, is, is with us. Uh, and beyond that, uh, the anthropologists working on the big data and global surveillance. Uh, what, what do these uh, modes of uh, transformation in the security services say about the production of poverty? I think these are areas that, that are around the corner. 
uh, big data uh, and what big data does for inequality is there. Now, that's not in the book, but how to explore it, how to, how to uh, bring an anthropology to see the production of inequality, the anti-politics uh, world, uh, the narrative framings that are there, uh, and the challenges, that's all there in the book. So no matter where your research uh, lies, no matter where your interests lie, uh, this has got something for you, I suspect. Um, and then, of course, we the last uh, moment is around what I suppose we could call the global civil rights movement, at least the movement of global peoples to acquire new rights. Migration, the challenges that are uh, tearing uh, apart uh, the political world that we're all living in as people seek to make lives better for themselves, uh, ignoring how planned development has brought many problems to their world, uh, and uh, doing it for themselves in new forms of movement. I suspect that we're uh, going to be exploring, uh, as it were, uh, the 1960s America writ large as borders become uh, more untenable, as, as, as rights are assertable in new ways. Uh, again, uh, the book is going to help you uh, in understanding these new challenges. So, essentially, um, I read this for the inspiration uh, I read this for what it can uh, do to help me think through these issues, and I recommend it entirely to you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so um, we're going to now open up the floor to questions. Um, while you're all thinking of something to say or something to ask our very learned panelists here, I'll just ask whether any of the, whether the two authors would like to just say anything in, in relation to what was discussed. A few people are leaving. That's fine. And once they've gone, <laughs> we'll yeah, no, um, we'll we'll kind of consolidate the smaller and more exclusive audience. <laughs> Should we see if there's any hands going up? Yeah. Are there any? I mean, I just wanted to make a comment actually. Whilst people, if people want to ask questions, which is really not to um, rebut either of what you said. Thank both. Thank you both very very much. But in a way, I think what David said and what James said are directly contradictory. Because I think David is saying the anthropology of development is a, is a field which is to do with planning and schemes of improvement. And I think what James is saying is the anthropology of development is actually everything, almost everything. So I don't, I don't really know if I can, we can comment except to just point out that. Maybe, and maybe that's the tension. Maybe that's the tension that we can't actually reconcile sitting here together. I just... I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that it's quite as, as sharp as that for the reasons that, that James just said. Once you start opening up what, what does planning involve, okay. then it very quickly involves a whole now, a much, an entirely different mm. field of, of actors and approaches and questions and evidence and data than uh, the, 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 what it meant in, 90, in the mid-1990s. Mm. So mm. I'm not sure. It's a question of the starting point okay. and, and that idea of um, uh, planning or, or as, as a route into understanding of what is inevitably going to take you into a much wider set of relationships and institutions and their practices. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I'll make a couple of points. I, mean, I think that's a really interesting debate, and maybe I won't go there now, except to say that as someone who works in a social policy department, it seems to me that this issue of planning and policy... Is, is really um, 
really important gap in the way in which anthropologists have tended to to go about things, but also the way in which people people working in public policy and social policy also, because I mean, there's a there's a tendency in my part of academia to see it as being about finding ways to make knowledge, you know, make research knowledge useful to policymakers, and not nearly enough attention paid to trying to understand what policy means as an idea and how policy processes work, both in the narrow immediate planning sense, but also in the much broader regulatory um, institutional sense. Um, the other thing that struck me is that, you know, although we've talked a lot about change, um, I think we've been reminded as well that, that history is also about things staying the same. And, and you could easily argue that some of the dilemmas around development and anthropology are pretty much the same as they've always been, which are the dilemmas and contradictions of, of applying anthropology. And it used to be, you know, in, in the colonial period, whether to get involved with the authorities. And now it's about whether you get involved with the U.S. military, you know, in the war, you know. And um, so these, thing, these things come and go. Um, and, uh, and, and within development, it's still a debate about... Um, is development about economic growth um, or is it about something much bigger? And, and we could have had that conversation in the 1950s and in the 1960s as well because people, people have always been arguing about this stuff. Um, and in the same way, um, a lot of this is about experts getting it wrong or getting it right. And, and that's also a conversation that, you know, that has a very, very long history and we're still, you know, we're still having that. So um, those are just a few thoughts. Oh, the other thing I was going to say was that I think, I think development has been quite useful to anthropology because it's finally allowed anthropology to deliver on this promise of studying up, which people started talking about an awful long time ago, that instead of just studying people without power, as anthropologists sort of tended to do, it, it has created you know, really important opportunities to engage with people with power. Great. Okay, any burning questions from practitioners and students and people out there? Yes? I'm sorry, if you could just say your name as well. I'm not an anthropologist. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something that Professor Moss said in about the last 20 years and how that economics and economists have become the more dominant discipline and, the, and less, there'd be less space anthropologists and I have a rather naive notion that if we are to address better the problems that the world faces both in the developed world and in the developing world we have to listen less to the economists and more to the anthropologists so my questions are first would you would you agree with that notion and secondly how do you go about actually doing it okay let's take a few questions uh, before we start getting responses have we got any other okay you Um, Thank you for your uh, discussion. Uh, very interesting. I'm a trainee geography teacher, and I just wondered, in terms of the kind of changes that are seen in UK secondary schools, in terms of accountability and exam passing, and you know all the hurdles um, that are to be passed. How can we have discussions that sort of go against the the main? Uh, so, if we have the curriculum that we are presented with. 
and we have to get students to pass exams on these questions. So how can we sort of steer the discussion if we're talking about development, for example, into areas that are more um, coming out of the university in terms of redefining what development actually means? So, for example, uh, post-carbon economies and things like that. It seems to me that the, the curriculum, certainly in geography, hasn't really caught up with these developments. So I think that's something we can all think about together. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Any other, th a third question before I, there we've got one, somebody over there, please. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to pick up on the first question, actually. Um, economics being perhaps not rightfully so the most dominant of sciences. But I was also thinking anthropology is very, very good at asking the right questions, but always feels kind of uncomfortable answering its own questions. So to what degree does anthropology also need something like economics to move that step forward into the domain of policy and whatnot? Okay, we'll take those three. Anybody want to have a stab at any of those? I'm happy to um, address the, the first and the last question because it, they seem to be um, connected. Um, the, the problem is, is not that e economists have, turn, have rejected um, uh, the contribution of anthropologists. The, the problem is that the contribution of anthropologists has been absorbed and reframed within um, the uh, within, within essentially economistic frameworks. And that's partly because of the question that uh, institutions ask of anthropologists, which is not what's going on, but what is the model uh, and the instrument that you can provide us that will allow us to plan an intervention that will address this problem. In other words, instead of looking at the complex set of social relationships around um, inequality in, in and so on, an economics-dominated institution uh, is likely to say, how do we justify investment in social capital such that that investment will lead to poverty reduction? and model that and want to have social science, as it were, uh, uh, the social factor as, as a factor that can, be fit, fit, can fit within um, a broadly economic-based model. Whereas the, an anthropologist is saying the world is relational and we need to understand phenomena relationally. Relational perspectives don't fit easily within institutions that are involved in, in, in planned interventions precisely for the same reason that economic uh, models work very well because they're better at looking at the future. Anthropologists, by and large, can tell you an awful lot about what has happened, uh, like historians, uh, but not very good at developing a model and saying, because things are like this, this is how it's going to work out in the next 15 years. If we do this, this is the likely outcome. I would say, though, that, I mean, whilst the gist of that critique is right or that comment is right, that economics dominates some action now. I think it is important to remember that anthropology has influenced um, policy and does, and that anthropologists have in some circumstances provided answers or guidelines, let's just say. And the, I mean, the, the big area that I can think of is, of course, that of gender. Um, I mean, the gender agenda, 
really came out of feminist anthropology, I would argue. So I, I think we shouldn't, um, we should be a little bit careful, although obviously I agree with the sort of general tenor. Um, is there any more to say on that? Because I was thinking about this geography question. Go on to it. Go on to it. Geography. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I just think we'll have to change the national curriculum. <laughs> Who writes the national curriculum? It must be geographers whose minds need changing. Hey. Let's yeah. work with... Yeah, let's, let's. And okay. regrets yeah. to know how the world is, but we shouldn't be too interested in trying to discuss, you know, how we want the world to be in the future. Okay. Yeah, and regrettably, although there has been an anthropology A-level for the last few years, yeah. they're actually withdrawing it. So mm. we seem to be moving backward when it, when it comes no, to your... Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you for raising it. Maybe you could um, help to change things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, do you want to say anything, or should we go on? Okay, any, any other questions? Yes, okay, we've got quite a few here. All right, uh, you two, and then those two up there. Can we get a microphone down here, please? Uh, or in the meantime... No, that's fine. Thank you. Should we go first to a woman? Sorry. Um, I think I wanted to present you with a question that I've heard before and that I've had before about the engagement of anthropology with... Um, the world of development, I guess. It seems that while there is a lot of, um, I don't know, optimism maybe um, about the role of anthropology in the world of development, there's also a lot of uh, concern about how the role of anthropologists could, you know, to some extent, help legitimize things that are, you know, problematic in the world of development. And, you know, as much as I think most anthropologists try to avoid that, I'm just wondering how do you, as anthropologists and um, you know, people who have engaged in this world for a long time. How do you resolve that tension? How do you work through these dilemmas of whether to engage with, you know, problematic areas or sometimes even like risky, um, I don't know, processes of making decisions? You know. Okay. Thank you. Um, there was yeah. Sorry, the lady in the red. Hello, thank you for your presentations. Um, I studied anthropology and I'm now working in development. And I come across the, you know, the dilemmas that you've probably outlined in your book and you've probably already covered this question in your book as well, but just for our benefit today. How can anthropologists working in this field help to create other opportunities for young anthropologists coming in to stop the frustrations? Because we might all want to sort of, you know, democratise the way we approach social research, but we can't do that because that's not the way the donor world works or the way the aimed industry works. So how do we create more opportunities for younger people who want to go the way we suggest, critically, but can't. Thank you. Thanks. And then we've got, I think we had two... Yeah, thank you, that lady there. Um, thank you very much. My name is Laura, and I'm a student here at the law department. And my question, I've just, like, hearing you comment to the books, I just had the feeling you've never really talked about law and the role of law in development. And so just my third question, do you think law or international law, transnational law, actually isn't that important for development. Thank you. And this question here. Uh, Faisal Siddiqui. I'm, I've not read the book, but I'm intrigued by the, by the suggestion that there's a case study on the Rana Plaza case, because, uh, you know, as you know, during the same time, there was another factory fire in Pakistan, 
which had the biggest death toll in actually recorded history to when 255 workers were burnt alive. And would you agree, I mean, having worked on the case as a lawyer for the victims, that how little we understand about the systematic dismantling of the state in these developing countries, the rising, rising power of local industrialists, the complete absence of any check on these European countries by even very interventionist states like Germany, and a complete absence of any kind of transnational mechanisms to actually seek justice. If, for example, you want to file litigation in Germany, it's next to impossible. So is it an ignorance of the literature on my behalf, or is there very little understanding of what really, why these tragedies really take place? Great. Um, David, we'll start with you. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, so uh, we, we talk briefly about the Rana Plaza disaster. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we do a detailed case study of it, but, I mean, I would agree with you that um, those questions around regulation are absolutely central to the, the, the agenda that we are, you know, we're talking about in the book. And... Um, But I, wouldn't, but I wouldn't totally agree with you that there is an abs, you know, a complete absence because what, what you also have are a whole set of efforts um, at different levels of that value chain. And you know, part of what we're asking in the book is, given that there are organizations, uh, companies sort of talking about regulation, seeking in different ways to enact um, different ways of protecting um, you know, workers. Why are they so spectacularly unsuccessful? What, you know, what's actually going on in those relationships? Um, so, you know, role of law, very important. I think that feeds into the discussion that we started having about sort of policy, planning, regulation. I mean, that is, we don't, we don't talk about it very much in the book, but it is very, very important. Um, creating opportunities for uh, younger people within the world of NGOs. I think you said that you worked for one. And donors. Um, I think, uh, well, I mean, there is tremendous interest in this subject matter amongst young people, and you can see that in, in a whole range of areas of people wanting to volunteer, people wanting to... In turn, I think that the one thing that organizations could do is to be more honest about what they do and actually engage with both the, the positive and the negative aspects of what you know, development work of that kind involves because we never really understand the complexities of it. And I think if, if one can create those opportunities for young people to engage with that in an honest way, I think that would be tremendously beneficial. Uh, maybe I should stop talking and hand James, do you want to say anything? Yeah, thanks. Um, I think on the basis of I mean, uh, addressing this law and, and the economics question, I think many anthropologists working on environment, for example, have been uh, looking at the ways in which the markets which trade carbon or biodiversity are established, the legal mechanisms by which um, uh, uh, financialization and market activity are rendered possible through law. That's, in a sense, law supportive of the market, 
that's an area of, of, of international development. It's what UNEP are supporting. It's, it's, it's where environmental policy is going. And anthropologists are, are uh, looking critically at this kind of uh, legislative creation to see how uh, actually it's established and, and the, the interests uh, there and, and the meanings attached to environment that are there and how they challenge other areas. What, what, where your question is interesting is that um, uh, the regulatory law uh, around protection uh, rights and such doesn't seem to get quite such uh, attention so much as the, finan- the, the, the legislation uh, for, for market production. Do you, do you, do you follow? Uh, uh, so your, your question there uh, is very pertinent to the to the, the foci of development, in fact, to the arguments made in this book that that there are kind of dominant narratives of development moving towards neoliberal uh, practice, freedom of markets that permit the establishment of those kind of inequalities that uh, have led to the disasters that, that, that you're uh, able to uh, respond to. Uh, but at the very same time, those, those uh, normative modes of development are occluding from vision uh, many of the uh, forms of poverty and insecurity that result from them. So uh, the, the, the task of the anthropologist is to, is to as it were, read against uh, the, these, these processes to see where, uh, w- what, what isn't uh, within the remit of planning what isn't being planned, where, where silences happen uh, as much as where, um, where, uh, where there is stuff to be studied. Does anybody want to address the first question we were asked about uh, anthropology's critical tendency? Or <laughs> We can leave it hanging in the air if I you think, like. I think these dilemmas are just uh, felt by many people who are studying anthropology and becoming anthropologists and working in anthropology, I think, um, in a way, the dilemmas of engagement are kind of crucial to the discipline in an odd way, and I think we kind of continue to worry around these issues, and we have done really for a very long time, and I don't know what... There are no clear answers. Was it... Some, was that... That's not really addressing what you've asked, though. Yeah, maybe I can be a lot more specific, actually. Um, I think... I've heard, I don't know, coming from Latin America, there's a lot of concern about, um, among anthropologists and people working in the social sciences in general about not wanting to engage with the world of development. In, oh, thanks. <laughs> um, with the world of development in general because of the potential danger of legitimizing the, sort of like yeah. the general structure of development or like the general mm-hmm. infrastructure of development. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was one thing that I heard over and over again. Um, really good anthropologists who are very... You know, um, I don't know, concerned or worried about trying to participate in this process. And so to me, it's interesting to see so much um, interest and so much uh, work going on here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm just wondering how do you personally engage with some of these questions? Why is it, how do you manage to do this? Um, whereas, guess, for example, in Latin America, it seems like it's not quite as easy in some areas at yeah. least. I guess that, that is what both books are about. I mean, the first book, the first edition of it was essentially approaching that problem. Which is what are you know? How do we engage? Should we engage? I, th- I would say. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, I think that has always been the position of of anthropologists um, in relation to development, and in a way, that was one of the starting problems that we wanted to challenge and say, actually, these are not 
either-or you know, decisions in some kind of binary sense. There tended to be this big gap between so-called pure and applied research or the anthropologist in development as opposed to an anthropology of development. And really the book is trying to break down that, um, you know, that traditional opposition and say, well, wait a minute, you know, is it really the case that you can remain outside of these things surely surely uh, you know everybody is is to some extent implicated but at the same time is it also really the case that if you if you go and do some work for an organization you're somehow selling your soul in a way that that means that you know everything you say and do is now compromised i mean i think we're you know we're really trying to tackle that sort of <coughs> dilemma there's a lot of kind of puritanical thinking that goes on around this whole subject. Did you want to come in on that, James? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an excellent question, and in a way it's, it's one that uh, Katie and uh, David's book really does address, and uh, in a sense it's where you, you draw the line around what is development, uh, because those very same anthropologists in Latin America are advocating all sorts of futures and ways to achieve it. Uh, rooted in their work through social movement, uh, activism and and other modes of engagement. And within uh, the anthropology of development, that is part of the remit. So it's not simply those who consider themselves in and out of the industry, but it's a much broader look at how anthropologists are contributing to ideas of futures and, and, and debates about it. And that's where it embraces uh, that critical perspective from Latin America uh, back in the 1990s, and it continues to do so. Uh, but that said, your question is just as good, because, uh, because we need to be complicit at times. You see, Ebola emerged in Republic of Guinea, what, you know, December 2013. I work in Guinea. Um, uh, the only people who are addressing that uh, are uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, to begin with, the WHO, and the people who I would usually never work with, the British Ministry of Defence. Uh, so here I am, as someone who's been separating anthropology from, uh, from the military, uh, suddenly finding myself that the only way in which to bring uh, some, some sense of mutual understanding between uh, some of the, the, the communities that have fallen out of the, the humanitarian world have defended themselves and their communities against and uh, those who would seek to help them is to enjoin in, to become complicit within it. Uh, so I think, I think you need to explore these kinds of uh, issues uh, comparatively. Uh, good question. Uh, no single answer. David's got something to say and then I've got, I've got two more questions and then I think we'll draw to a close. Okay. Yeah, so David. Well, just to say, it seems that the question uh, has shifted from um, whether to engage in development or or not, and as to uh, questions about where within the expanded and differentiated field of new so called development um, engagement is appropriate or not. And I think we might do well to reflect on the kind of judgments that are being made. Um, which distinguish working with social movement leaders, uh, working with corporate social responsibility um, program uh, planners, uh, the military, um, local health uh, um, bureaucracies, or whatever. Because there are clearly, there's a field there in which judgments are being applied, uh, mostly implicitly, 
uh, at the moment, rather than explicitly. Um, and it's also shaping and guiding the fields that anthropologists research in, because people do tend to want to research fields and work with people that they like and, uh, and approve of, <laughs> which means that as a whole, the anthropology of this broader development field is, is highly distorted towards certain kinds of engagements and away from others. So the bad stuff we know very little about uh, ethnographically because there are fewer people actually investigating it. So I think it's consequential how we um, ethically colour the, the, the new map of, of development and therefore what we learn from, from the studies that we do. Okay, uh, thanks. Uh, so I'll take you... Uh, um, Alpa, there was, you had a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got it, don't worry. Thanks. Um, I'm Alpa um, uh, from the Anthropology Department. Um, uh, I found this discussion, I haven't read, read the new version of the book, but I just found it so really interesting to hear about your dilemmas and the ways in which you've expanded the book and also to, to, to hear... Um, James's comments about it, um, uh, and 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 in relation to David's, um, uh, you know, for years I was teaching this course on on the anthropology of development while running an MA in anthropology and development at Goldsmiths, and I just found it so constraining. And then the necessity to move out, you know, to think about processes of inequality, to think about revolutionary struggles, to think about social movements, to think about. Uh, human rights issues and all of bringing all of those it's central to the teaching of the course and to what I wanted to get across to students about the processes of change over time which is what you know if you development is really about uh, and the tensions between continuity and change and I, I'm just wondering as I as I sit here listening to you and Dave, um, James's provocative question about in 20 years time if this book were to be written would there even be development in the title and um, just wondering about what you think, David and Katie, about whether if you had a carte blanche, whether you would have replaced development in the title with inequality, and whether we are perpetuating the field of development and the kind of institu and, uh, an approach to looking at the institutional field of development um, through the courses that we teach, through the degrees that we offer, and whether it's time for us to rethink uh, whether we want development there in our <laughs> curriculum at all and whether we ought to be expanding out to you know, an MSc or an MA in anthropology and inequality or widening the scope through the kinds of issues that you've been talking about. Yeah. Thank you. Um, down here? Oh, just hold on, let's get the microphone. There we go. I just want to make a short comment, because everybody knows and heard, read about how anthropology has engaged in colonization and long legitimization for wrong policy. But I hope for your future edition, because you guys are leading the transitional period of development paradigm, with the anthropological perspective, I hope for the future edition, please write down how you led great achievement changing the development for more sustainable way. Okay, and there was one final one up there. Well, thank you for your presentation. And my question is, what do you think of the idea? Is it working? Uh, what do you think of the idea that economical development will eventually lead, or at least encourage, 
improvements in other areas that we consider to be development as well. Like, for example, a better human right uh, performance. And why do you think so? Great. Okay, I'm going to um, draw a line on the questions, I think, at this point, and ask the... Sorry, you can ask again at, uh, outside of you. So just ask anyone who wants to respond to any of those. Okay. Um, They're such great questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are we perpetuating development by running MSCs on development? Um, is it all a discourse? Yes, probably. Um, I think the the question, the interesting thing is, and this is maybe to slightly dodge your question, Alpa, but um, when we wrote the first edition of the book, anthropology, anthropology development and the postmodern challenge, we we the development was definitely in there. And when we came back to it, we felt the postmodern challenge, in some odd ways, it sort of whatever that was, it had it had sort of shifted or moved away from the centre stage, but development was still there. It was still there. I think we argued about it a bit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, development was still there, and I think, you know, I think in 20 years, James, I think development will still be there. And so whether or not we run an MSc or p- programs on development um, is, uh, is a question that we might want to debate, and we can debate it, and maybe we will. But I think given that it's there, it is an ethnographic fact in the sense that James Ferguson talks about it. I think, therefore, it is a... Is it not then a, v- a viable object of study? But I, I mean, obviously, I, I take... Point. I don't know if you want to add to that, David. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's a really interesting question, and I'd, I'd hate to think that we might have played some role in the perpetuation of a particular but we version. Have, but we surely have. Well, well we have, but, <laughs> but I think, well, I mean, one thing I think that we were very surprised by in the, you know, when we came back to this was how strong the, the idea of development or the word development was, because I think we thought that it might have... I mean, certainly in the mid-'90s, there were people saying this was an idea way past its sell-by date. And that's what, you know, the whole, the, you know, the development uh, dictionary and the post-development, you know, theorists were all really saying that. Um, but I think that, that this is a... You know, what we try and show in the book, I think, is that it's a, it's a sort of container concept it's, it's, you know, to some extent, um, you, know, it, it, you know, it's contested with, you know, with multiple meanings. And we're saying that if it's there, let's try and argue about the meanings that we think are, are valid and important. And let's contest the, the versions that aren't. Um, you know, that would be how I would address it. Yeah. Anyone want to address the question about the government? And yeah. <laughs> um, which was which... which which questions? Was, um, so you were asking about sort of interventions with governments and changing things like that? I would have you comment this for the future edition. Yeah. There are quite a lot of successful stories, yeah. in fact, right, in your book and we do talk in many about other that places. in the book. Yeah. yeah, we do try anyway, but there maybe aren't as many successes as we'd have <laughs> liked. That's the, the the dips and dives that, that David was talking about. Yeah, and okay. then there's a question about whether or not economic development leads to progressive change. Well, that was your human rights and human rights. Um, do you want to? 
Not because it's not an important question. Obviously, that's an enormous question and a really important question. So thank you for raising it. But it's um, that, in a way, that's one of the questions of the anthropology of development. And I think that, and this is where I do slightly disagree with you, David, if you don't mind, that I don't don't think that development is, for me anyway, the anthropology of development is not just about planned development. It's also about looking at these changes, development in the kind of populistic sense of simply economic change, growth, and whether or not that could lead to progressive, progressive change or whether or not it indeed entrenches inequalities and poverty. So I think that is part of the field of study. Yeah. I mean, and there's two, you know, there's at least two different debates about this because on the one hand, there are arguments to say that growth is not, should not be the focus of how we think about the reorganisation of societies. But then there's another set of arguments that says economic growth can take many different forms and there are many different types or ways of thinking about economic growth and producing economic growth. So therefore, you know, there are going to be forms of economic growth that are more inclusive than others and address inequality and there are quite clearly many forms of economic growth that have the opposite effect. Okay. All right, so I think everyone's had their say, and so it just remains for me to thank all of you for coming and to thank our speakers for a very interesting discussion. And please don't forget that you can buy a book outside and get it signed by these eminent people.